You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Stephen Ellis from NUI Galway. His paper was entitled Defending the English Pale, the Voice Royalty of Richard Nugent, Third Baron of Delvin. In mid-September 1527, Richard Nugent, Third Baron of Delvin, took up office as Governor of Ireland. This viceregal experiment was another example of Henry, Henry VIII's unavailing attempts to find a trustworthy and reliable local noble to serve as governor, who also had sufficient man-read to rule the borders so saving the costs of a garrison for frontier defence. The usual early Tudor response to this problem had been to rely on a great regional magnate like the Earl of Kildare, who certainly saved on defence costs, but was less reliable than Henry VIII would have wished. A border baron living in the English Pale's exposed western marches, Lord Delvin was in fact then Meath's leading resident landowner. But despite Delvin's military prowess and political reliability, the King's commission to him as governor of this turbulent Tudor borderland was quite inadequate to outweigh the limitations on his power and authority imposed by modest landed holdings and a very localised man read. In May 1528, the experiment was terminated abruptly by Delvin's kidnapping by the local Irish chief O'Connor Fallon so plunging the Dublin administration into crisis. Lord Delvin replaced as governor Sir Thomas Fitzgerald, whom Kildare had appointed as his deputy on going to England at Christmas 1526. Henry VIII had summoned Kildare and the Earl of Ossory to court in another attempt to compose the ongoing feud between the two earls. Nominally, Delvin served as Kildare's vice-deputy, but his reputation was as the great key and strength of the Westmeath marchers, who was ever more true to the king and ready most faithfully to assist the king's deputies. Earlier good relations between Delvin and Kildare had by then since collapsed. Delvin resented the earl's growing influence and land purchases amongst the English captains and surnames, Dalton, Delamere, Dillon and Tyrrell. Kildare had supposedly subdued the power of the said captains and converted to himself the obedience and strength of those marchers. In the confrontation, Kildare clapped Delvin in prison. When reappointed deputy in 1524, Kildare had undertaken not to stir any war against Delvin, Ossery or Sir William Darcy, but this had not healed the feud. In June 1526, Delvin had gone up to court and the king rewarded him 
in September with a generous lease of the manor of Bellgarden 4, plus the wardship and marriage of his kinsman neighbour, Thomas Nugent of Multifarnham, a little to the west. A year later, Delvin's appointment as vice-deputy was essentially the king's decision, an experiment at governing through a border baron as deputy to the ruling magnate. Ostensibly an astute move, it led to a battle of wills between king and earl at court. Delvin's father had briefly served as deputy lieutenant to Richard, Duke of York in 1448-49. He was one of Duke Richard's principal tenants, holding the feudal barony of Delvin of Richard's manor and liberty of trim by four knights' fees. The barony was later deemed to include a peerage, and both the estates and the peerage passed to Lord Delvin on his father's death in 1478. Delvin's main sphere of influence lay around his uh, ancestral barony of Delvin in Meath's western marches. It included his principal estate, the manor of Castleton Delvin, worth over £40 a year, and the smaller manor of Adamstown, worth £25 a year. To the northwest, near O'Reilly's country, lay the large barony of Four, where Delvin's son, was prior of four monastery, worth £175 a year. The king's generous 50-year lease to Delvin of Bellgarden Four had further augmented his properties there. The manor was valued at £44 a year, and the baron's total holdings in four barony exceeded £72 annually. A modest increase in the amount of land under tillage in the baronies of Delvin and Four also suggests more stable political conditions there. Further east, in the Pale Mahary, Delvin also held Drakestown Manor, worth £20 a year. So Delvin's Meath estates brought in around £160 a year in total, and this probably made him the shyest wealthiest resident landowner in the absence of its leading landowners, the Bishop of Meath, the Prior of Lantony, uh, and Kildare himself, who as deputy remained nominally responsible for the Shire's good rule and defence. Most of Delvis's estates, moreover, were strategically located in the Shire's exposed western marches, enabling him more easily to organise defence against raids and robberies by the Midland Irish or the English marcher lineages. But beyond Meath, Delvin's possessions were quite meagre. Only estates in Haggardstown, County Louth, worth £40 a year, and scattered uh, County Dublin possessions worth around the same. All this certainly bore out the opinion of the Lord Chancellor and Chief Justice in early in 1528 that Delvin hath no great lands of his own. His estates across the English Pale were worth no more than £240 a year, which was modest enough even for a minor peer. Disconcertingly too, as soon became clear, Delvin could not, as Kildare's deputy, deploy the Earl's Manred in connection for defence, unlike Kildare's original deputy, his brother Sir Thomas. In November, the council appealed to Cardinal Wolsey either for the speedy return of Kildare and Ossery, who, once confirmed in amity, should never do better service than now, or otherwise to provide for defence, because the English were 
were never weaker since the conquest, owing to divisions and lack of captains. The following February, in the face of increasing Irish raids, Lord Chancellor Ing and Chief Justice Birmingham again appealed to Woolsey to provide for the land's defence, stressing that Delvin was not of power to defend the Englishry. He had had some limited experience as governor 30 years before, serving as chief captain uh, after Poyning's expedition, but his military reputation had mainly been as captain of mounted spears, commanding the English cavalry at the Battle of Nocdoe, where he had initially slain one of the Burks with his casting spear. As temporary governor, Delvin received £500 a year, which perhaps enabled him to hire a few extra troops, but not a large retinue for defence. The king's revenues available to him as vice-deputy were scant enough to pay the king's officers their ordinary fees, leaving him full little to maintain his charges. And the subsidy may not be had till it be granted by Parliament. Delvin had little option, therefore, but to billet his troops on the country, quartering them for two nights each in, in each township, uh, while journeying through the Pale Mahari, in contravention of the Act of Marches and Mahari, which prohibited coin and livery, except by landowners on their own tenants in the marches. So, the poor people is far more charged and oppressed by Delvin, so the Chancellor and Chief Justice warned, than they have been, the Earl of Kildare being here. The Council feared some serious injury from the Border Irish, now leagued together. O'Connor Valley and O'Neill had both been alerted by Delvin's appointment and news of Kildare's disfavour at court. Meanwhile, Kildare remained under interrogation. On leaving for court, he'd allegedly taken an oath individually from each member of the King's Council to write in his favour. An Irish chief's on good terms with him, notably O'Neill, his nephew, O'Connor, his son-in-law, and O'Brien had been asked to sit still until the King's intentions became clear. So, as proceedings at court dragged on, so the Earl's supporters in Ireland held their hand. About All Hallowtide, 1527, it looked as if matters would be settled to Kildare's satisfaction. Some of his servants returned to Ireland to urge his friends to keep the peace until the following May, in expectation of his return. But this optimism proved ill-founded. During the winter, this poor land suffered great losses and damages. Chiefly from raids on the Pale Marches, allegedly incited by Kildare's supporters in the hope that he should rather than come home. The raids gradually escalated into O'Connor's Wars, as they were called. Lasting into 1529, they were reputedly instigated by Kildare's steward and receiver general, uh, Sir Walter Delahide, uh, Janet Eustace's wife, and Kildare's daughter, Alice. Delvin could do little to prevent these wars and the marchers upon Irishmen, perceiving not how to be defended, had so patished with the Irishmen next adjoining to them that the said Irishmen come through them and do hurt to others within them, and they to take no hurt. Following further pleas from the council, Woolsey wrote to individual Irish chiefs, assuring them of the king's friendship. 
O'Neill responded that any injuries to the King's subjects were done in self-defence against Lord Delvin and others, from whom he could get no redress, and in order to collect the black rents owing to him. Despite this, the Council urged Delvin rather to suffer for a time than to give occasion of war to any Irishman, and particularly not a Conifale, for the diverse robberies made on Englishmen and conveyed into his country. For his part, Delvin perhaps calculated that rather than pursuing chiefs further afield, he stood more chance of exacting redress from O'Connor, uh, whose lordship of Offaly lay southwest and within striking distance of Delvin Baronia. Um, against the council's advice, he stopped O'Connor's wages, the black rent traditionally paid to the chief. When O'Connor sought to negotiate, sending a messenger to Dublin, Delvin had the messenger arrested, but he then agreed to a parley on the 12th of May by Sir William Darcy's border castle of Ratin in Rathweel Lordship, near Offaly. The parley went badly. Accompanied by Lord Butler, Osiris son and heir, and Christopher Cusack, former Sheriff of Meath, Delvin brought only a small retinue and refused O'Connor's offer of a truce. Uh, with hostages in Sir Thomas Fitzgerald's hands for all Delvin's claims against him. Anticipating this rejection, and mindful perhaps that Kildare had asked him to keep the peace only until Sir Nicholas died, 9th of May, O'Connor had brought a strong force with him, planning to capture the vice-deputy if he got a chance. The description of the power of Irishmen and the Palesman's military obligation of troops for general hostings based on landed income, perhaps gives some impression of the opposing forces. O'Connor could make 40 horsemen, 200 kern, and a battle of Galaglass, around 70 men. Delvin's normal retinue for a hosting would have been about 20 horsemen, one horseman for each 10 marks of marchland, and perhaps six archers on foot, a bowman for every 20 pounds of landed income there. But Christopher Cusack perhaps brought a company of bowmen from his estates in Screen Barony. For hostings, Delvin was also charged with finding 30 kern, but these presumably were not with him at the parley. In the ensuing melee, all the footmen were killed. The horsemen did a little better. Some were wounded, some captured along with Delvin and Cusack, but the rest escaped, including Lord Butler. On receiving the news, Lord Chancellor Ing wrote both to Sir Walter Delahide and Walter Wellesley, prior of Great Connell, asking them to speak with O'Connor and sending letters to the chief. In separate letters to the king, Wolsey and the Duke of Norfolk, the council appealed for urgent assistance and meanwhile appointed Sir Thomas Fitzgerald as Captain General for Defence. Fearing that Sir Thomas's appointment seemed to repugnate at the king's pleasure, they justified it as compelled on them because the Geraldines be next to the defence of these parts, and Austria so far from us that the country might be sore damaged before his coming hither. Even so, Fitzgerald permitted O'Connor and his adherents to invade, rob and destroy diverse of the king's subjects in the English Pale, as he later admitted, 
by reason of certain intelligence had with O'Connor, contrary to his allegiance. Their letters to Norfolk also enclosed the prior's reply to Chancellor Ing. The prior reported from Ballybogan near Offaly that he presented Ing's letters to O'Connor. Explaining the purport to him, O'Connor felt that he might uh, overrun the English Pale without resistance, demanded regular payment of his wages, and refused to make peace or truce without O'Carroll's consent, who was married to um, Kildare's daughter Cecily and other chiefs. The prior feared that he would burn Athboy, Mullingar and Trim. Sir Walter Delahide's response was even less reassuring. Meanwhile, Lord Butler had been sent back through Offaly on the chief's safe conduct to negotiate. He found Delvin closely confined at O'Connor's house and was only allowed to speak to him openly in Irish so that their conversations could be understood. O'Connor replied that he would never consent to peace without his wages, Delvin's ransom and the bond of the king's subjects never to be revenged on him, but Butler managed to persuade the chief's brother to accompany him to the Earl of Ostry, who then persuaded O'Carroll, O'Moore, McGilliforic and O'Mahe uh, to withdraw their support from O'Connor if the latter remained obdurate and refused to release Delvin. The matter of Delvin's capture and a replacement governor now became a delicate issue for Henry VIII. After summoning Kildare and Ossory to court, the king had hitherto shown no great urgency in resolving their feud or investigating Kildare's conduct of government, despite persistent warnings from the council of Delvin's inadequacy as vice-deputy. Appeals to Woolsey for the land's defence likewise drew little response, although Ossory was uh, licensed to return home in the spring. But after receiving letters from Ossory about Delvin's capture, the king's initial response was to order Wolsey, at his discretion, to draw up a commissioner's deputy either for Ossory or Lord Butler. Meanwhile, the council, unaware of this, had appealed to the Duke of Norfolk, past governor and absentee lord of lands in South Leinster, hoping that the Duke's experience and familiarity with Irish conditions might coax a more adequate response from the King. On hearing, the council, the, on hearing of the Council's plight, the Duke warned Wolsey candidly that if the King's subjects were overrun, burned and spoiled of their corn, cattle and goods, the land should not be recovered without a right great charge. And when the king finally sent power to punish the rebels, there would be no victual wherewith to maintain his army, thus forcing the king to begin a, a new conquest as King Henry II did. A fortnight later came Norfolk's more considered response, humbly asking Wolsey, and this, in this time of great need, so to look upon the poor land of Ireland that he take not more hurt this year than in any year since the first conquest, considering also the great weakness as well of good captains of the Englishry as lack of men of war, and the great dissension between the magnates with the Irishmen never so strong as now. The Duke saw no remedy, the King not sending the Earl of Kildare thither, but only to continue his brother in authority for this summer, 
helping him either with three or four hundred Englishmen and good captains with them, or else sending some good sum of money, both to wage men there and to distribute to Irishmen to take the deputy's part, or at least to sit still without doing hurt. Finally, he warned that if any proposal were made to make Ossery or Butler deputy, in no wise to condescend thereunto. For if they had the rule, being so far off as they be, and also at war with the rebel Earl of Desmond and O'Brien, they would be unable to defend the four shires, nor scan their own country. And when coming into the English Pale, they must come strong, and shall spend so much in the country that they shall do more hurt than good. Then he added, Because I know the experience of the premises, I am so bold plainly to advertise your grace of mine opinion, wherewith I humbly beseech your grace to be content. Wolsey was further swayed by the advice from the prior of Kilmainham, then in England, that Lord Butler, or some other of good power, should be subrogate in lieu of the deputy prisoner, and raids made to destroy the Irishman's court. He drew up a, uh, a dispatch accordingly, sending the king a memorial of certain considerations moving him thus to make expedition of Ireland. This tried very diplomatically to justify Butler's appointment as vice deputy to Kildare, considering that now is no time convenient to discharge Kildare. If Kildare were clearly excluded from office, his kin and servants might overrun the English pale and destroy the harvest, whereas if they were contained by dulce and fair means and some hope of Kildare's return, they would hold back. Also, Kildare standeth onerate as yet as the king's deputy, and any great hurt of the Englishry might be laid to his, to his charge. Butler was also the king's servant, so could be instructed to act by the council advice, and would better defend the land to which such profits as Kildare received as deputy could now be converted. Pleasant letters should also be written to Osry, the King's Council, O'Donnell, and others to assist Butler, and sharp letters written to O'Connor to release Kildare's deputy taken by fraud and under colour of friendly communication. If, however, Kildare should be discharged, and another deputy forthwith newly made there, then Wolsey thought that Osry uh, was more meat. This was the last thing the king wanted to hear. The cardinal received a sharp rebuke. The king in no wise likes the instructions, and thinks Kildare goeth fraudulently about to colour that the king should think his grace could not be served, but only by him. As for Butler... All the noblemen shall disdain to see so young a man their governor. His father should be deputy, and the profits of the king's wards, farms and royalties taken from Kildare and given to him. The results of Osterey's appointment in August were much as Norfolk predicted. The earl was forced to divide his army, leaving part in Munster to defend his lands against Desmond. He brought the rest into the English Pale in October, when he finally arrived to accept the king's commission. Meanwhile, Kildare's servant, Mailer Fay, viewed his daughter Alice's return to Ireland alone in August as a privy token that the earl was not at his pleasure to come home. 
Alice rode straight to O'Connor's house. Soon after, O'Connor made new invasions, roads and hostilities, combining with Kildare's kinsmen and followers to raid the Pale in Ossery's absence and lying in wait to intercept Ossery and Butler on their arrival. The Act of Attainder against Kildare in 1536 retrospectively attainted the Earl from July 1528 for having commanded his daughter to repair into Ireland to will all his brethren, O'Neill, O'Connor and all other his friends, servants and allies to levy war against our said Sovereign Lord's deputy and subjects against their duty of allegiance. They made insurrection, burning, killing, murdering and robbing his true obedient subjects. Alison and Melia Fay both received pardons for treason in 1529. To keep a strong retinue, Ossery was forced to spend the country imposing coin and livery for four days and nights in one place, which was never seen before. Almost his first act as deputy was to renew the council's request for an army of Northumberland spears, light footmen, apt to take pain and labours like Scots marchers. As for Delvin, O'Connor met the king's sharp letters for his release with studied insolence. Interrupting the messenger translating the signet letter's formal opening phrase, the king's grace did greet him well, O'Connor asked derisively, What king? The king of England, came the response, to which he answered with pomp that he trusted if he might live one year to see Ireland in that case, that the king should have no jurisdiction or intermitting therewith, than that there should be no more name of king in, of England in Ireland than the king of Spain. Finally, the deputy in council, meeting with the Meath Lord Spiritual and Temporal in Dublin on the 25th of February, agreed that since the Shire was mostly wasted, plundered, and devastated this year by extortions, robberies and burnings by O'Connor and his allies, with many other injuries to our lieges dwelling there, his, ways, his wages should be levied as in time past, and the deputy shall conclude what peace with O'Connor that he shall think, think most uh, convenient. O'Connor's wages were restored and Delvin released. The following summer, the king relented, and Ossery was discharged. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.